Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 123. It's titled, Why Health Insurance Premiums and Drug Prices Are Exploding. Our family of five has a high deductible health insurance policy. We purchased it on the Idaho Health Insurance Exchange, and it's issued by Blue Cross of Idaho. Given the high deductible, we pay most of our medical costs out of pocket. We don't receive any subsidy for our $1,250 monthly premium payment. Now, that premium is 22% higher than what we paid in 2015. The good news is the policy covers the cost of preventive generic prescription. But fearing that perhaps my premiums would go up, I went on the Idaho Department of Insurance to see if there was any indication from those insurance companies participating on the exchange what their 2017 rates would be. And I found it. Blue Cross of Idaho submitted a 49% rate increase for our current policy. That would cost us $1,950 a month, over $23,000 per year for health insurance. That's unbelievable. And so I went and tried to figure out what is driving these increases. Is Blue Cross of Idaho making windfall profits at my behalf or on behalf of my family? Well, it turns out no. In February 2016, Fitch, a rating agency, downgraded the ratings outlook for Blue Cross of Idaho's financial strength to negative from stable. Fitch stated, BCI's historically strong operating performance has deteriorated over the past two years due primarily to higher care utilization rates associated with its participation in Idaho's state-based health insurance exchange associated with the the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act. What they're saying is participants who purchased individual health insurance policies are filing more and costlier medical claims than Blue Cross of Idaho anticipated. Now, my our deductible is about $6,500, and so those that are filing, at least for our insurance policy, are filing these claims are somehow exceeding the, the deductible, which means they're getting sick. Fitch says... Other insurers in Idaho, as well as in other states, have had similar higher-than-expected claims and underwriting losses related to their individual health insurance businesses. Blue Cross of Idaho filed a rate justification form, I guess a form, with the Idaho Department of Insurance. And in there, there was a letter, and they detailed out their 2015 financials. In 2015, Blue Cross of Idaho collected $230 million dollars in premium payments for its individual health insurance business and they paid out claims of 251 million after administrative costs taxes and commissions blue cross of idaho suffered an underwriting loss of 57 million dollars fitch says blue cross of idaho quote implemented significant rate increases on its exchange business in both 2015 and 2016 in an effort to bring pricing in line with developing claims experience. It is currently unclear if the increases will be sufficient to return the company's operating performance within the next two years to the level of stability it experienced historically. 
Apparently, Blue Cross of Idaho has still not stabilized its underwriting losses given its request for an average 29% premium policy increase in 2017, including the 49% increase for my family's bronze HSA plan. Blue Cross of Idaho attributes 41% of its requested premium increase to higher cost for prescription drugs, while 38% of the increase is due to higher medical claims costs, much of which is due to less healthy policyholders. Now, let's recall what the aim of the Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare, was. It was to ensure access to health care irrespective of pre-existing medical conditions. And that actually helped me. When I first applied, after I quit my job, we, and, and our COBRA ran out, so I couldn't get insurance through my former employer, employer, I applied for insurance with Blue Cross of Idaho. And they approved me, but they had my pre-existing condition says we're not going to cover that for a year. And so if I had gotten sick with that particular condition, I would have been heavily exposed. So with Obamacare, I, that next year we applied, same Blue Cross of Idaho, they could not exclude that pre-existing condition. Now, the other thing with Obamacare is premiums were supposed to be risk-adjusted based only on the applicant's age and whether they smoked. When I for, first applied for health insurance with Blue Cross of Idaho, they rated our family. We had to fill out questionnaires, and, and they just looked at our health situation and said, this is your premium. Now, if you buy a policy through the, the healthcare exchanges, they can't do that. They, they look at your age and whether you smoke. Now, that only works if you, exclu- if you, if you can exclude pre-existing conditions, and you can only quote rates based on people's ages and their, whether they smoke and not based on their specific health circumstances, then you need a very big pool of workers. It needs to be broad and include both young and old, healthy and sick. But unfortunately, many of the young and healthy are opting out and not buying health insurance. By law, for the 2016 tax year, U.S. individuals who don't have health insurance must pay a penalty equal to 2.5% of their adjusted gross income, up to a maximum of $695 per adult. Now, that penalty is significantly cheaper than buying a health insurance policy. Your typical policy, at least in Idaho, if you're young and single, is roughly $300 a month. If you get a high deductible plan, I think it was $250. It's what we quoted for my sons. And, and you compare that to $695, $250 a month, you're, you're several thousand dollars a year. And so they're opting out and, and choosing to, to not have health insurance because they feel young and, and like they're going to be fine. And, and I admit, my entire growing up years, we did not have health insurance. My, my mom couldn't afford it. I didn't even know health insurance existed until I went to college and saw that you could get health insurance. My mom said, you should get the health insurance. But the, our entire growing up, she would just pray that we didn't get sick or break our arms or legs as we had no way to pay for health insurance. James Surowiecki recently wrote in The New Yorker, participants in the ACA marketplaces are less numerous and sicker 
than anticipated. 8.3 million fewer people enrolled through the exchanges this year than the Congressional Budget Office had projected. As a result, insurers in much of the country are fleeing the marketplaces. Kaiser estimates that between 20 and 25 percent of U.S. counties may have only one insurer offering coverage in 2017. Lack of competition is a recipe for higher premiums or low benefits or both, further deterring younger, healthier people from buying policies, which means the risk pool gets gets still older and sicker, which means insurance companies lose money and leave the market, which means the competition is reduced even further. It's just sort of this downward spiral. Of course, even if more young adults bought insurance, premiums would still be climbing significantly due to higher prescription drug prices. Back with with the Blue Cross of Idaho, they estimate 40% of the rate increase is due to rising drug prices. Truveris, a healthcare data company that tracks drug prices, estimates prescription drug prices rose over 10% last year. It's third year of double-digit increases. Branded drugs, those still on patent, rose 14.7% in 2015. And specialty drugs used to treat complex and rare conditions, including cancer, which tend to have the highest prices, rose 9.2%. Generic drug prices only increased 3% last year. The federal government estimates overall prescription drug spending was $300 billion in 2014, an increase of 12% from the previous year. Now, I am not an expert in in medical cost pricing, health insurance, and so I, I had to go search and search to figure out why are drug prices increasing so much and how that that's that's influencing health insurance premiums, including what my family and I are paying. What I found surprising is overall prescription drug prices and spending are increasing at double-digit rates even as the use of lower-priced generic drugs is expanding. The generic drug industry expanded rapidly after 1984 when the U.S. Congress passed the Hatch-Waxman Act, which abbreviated the regulatory process for getting generics approved. In 1984, only 19% of drugs dispensed in the U.S. were generics. In 2014, 88% of prescriptions filled are for generics. Yet prescription drug prices keep going up. Why? Pharmaceutical companies suggest drug prices are high so they can recoup their research and development costs. That is only partially true. Robert Frankel owns the Sellersville Pharmacy in Pennsylvania. He was recently quoted in the Los Angeles Times. He asked, why are these companies raising their prices? His answer, because they can. We'll see why they can in a minute. But first, pharmaceutical companies indeed face high cost when they bring a new drug to market. They spend on average $2.6 billion to get FDA approval. And only one in 10 drugs that begins clinical trials is approved by the FDA. And of the drugs that are approved, only about 20% earn enough in sales to cover their development costs. This is data compiled by Emory University School Law Law Professor Joanna Shepard. 
was in a paper titled This Prescription for Rising Drug Prices, Competition or Price Controls. And I, I quote a number of academic articles in, in newspaper articles in this episode. You can get links to all that in the show notes at moneyfortherestofus.net. Or if you're a member of my Insider's Guide, we'll already emailed you the, the show notes to this episode along with the summary article, which turns out to be, to, to be a fairly long summary article since this is such a complex topic. You can sign up for my free Insider's Guide by going to moneyfortherestofus.net, and then you'll get these things sent to you free each week. Or if you're a U.S.-based listener, you can, go, you can text the word INSIDER to the number 44222. The typical brand of drugs has approximately 10 years to recover its R&D cost before its patent expires and it begins competing with generic drugs. And those generic t- drugs typically capture 70% of the brand of drugs market share within 12 months of the generic drugs release. Pharmaceutical companies do everything they can to extend the time they have exclusive marketing rights to a drug, including filing and this is quite common, filing additional follow-on patents, or it's called double patenting, and repackaging the drug with new methods of delivery or additional features. Given high research and development costs and a short time window for exclusive rights to a drug, pharmaceutical companies have every incentive to set a price that maximizes profit after receiving FDA approval for a new drug. Fortunately for pharmaceutical companies, the opaque structure of the healthcare market gives them maximum pricing power as long as there isn't a substitute product and the patient, health provider, and insurance company are willing to pay. Frederick M. Abbott, in his paper, Excessive Pharmaceutical Prices and Competition Law, shares an example of maximum pricing power involving Gilead Sciences, who introduced a drug Solvaldi in late 2013 to treat hepatitis C. Gilead set the price of the drug at $84,000 for a 12-week course of treatment, earning $14 billion in its first year on the market. Solvaldi was initially developed by the smaller biotechnology company Pharmacet, who Gilead purchased in 2011 for $11 billion. Prior to its acquisition, Pharmacet planned on pricing Solvaldi at $35,000 per treatment. Now, the actual cost for treatment is approximately $350. Pharmacet was going to charge $35,000. Gilead ended up charging $84,000. Abbott writes, The executives at Gilead essentially set out to determine What would be the maximum price that would stress the limits of political and public opinion, but not quite break it? This was with clear understanding that the pricing of the drug would severely undermine state public health procurement budgets. Gilead has refused to furnish Congress with direct information regarding its cost of bringing the product to market, despite being requested to do so. As revealed in the Washington Post, Kevin Young, Gilead's executive vice president for commercial operations, wrote in an internal email, quote, let's not fold to advocacy pressure in 2014. Let's hold our position, whatever competitors do or whatever the headlines. 
The Washington Post went on to say, Gilead considered a range of prices for Savaldi and weighed the value to its shareholders against the reputational risk, meaning, meaning the potential outrage from patients, physicians, and payers. The potential prices they were considering ranged from $50,000 to $115,000, and they settled on $84,000. As a Morgan Stanley pharmaceutical analyst explained in 2007, Regarding higher-priced cancer-fighting drugs, quote, market structure effectively provides no mechanism for price control in oncology other than the company's goodwill and tolerance for adverse publicity. They're going to charge pharmaceutical companies, if they have exclusive right, they're going to charge as much as they can without risking some type of backlash. But why do insurance companies pay those high prices. Because there is public outrage from policyholders, patient advocacy groups, and the medical community when they refuse to do so, particularly when it comes to life-extending cancer drugs. David Howard, Peter Bach, Ernest Bernd, and Rena Conti in their paper Pricing in the Market for Anti-Cancer Drugs shared how Quote, Oregon's Medicaid program recently proposed to limit coverage of anti-cancer drugs on the grounds that in no instance can it be justified to spend $100,000 in public resources to increase an individual's expected survival by three months when hundreds of thousands of Oregonians are without any form of health insurance. Their proposal was withdrawn following the public backlash. Consumers want access to the latest and greatest drugs. They think they'll cure cancer, but the reality is that same paper showed newer anti-cancer drugs don't significantly improve survival rates over older drugs. The paper said, the scientific knowledge embodied by new drugs is impressive, but progress in basic science has not always been accompanied by proportionate improvement in patient outcomes. Gains in survival time associated with recently approved anti-cancer drugs are typically measured in months, not years. Yet with an average cost of $65,000 per treatment, newer anti-cancer drugs are significantly more expensive. Consequently, that study found the average launch price of anti-cancer drugs adjusted for inflation and health benefits, in other words, adjusted for the additional few months of life, Even if you make that adjustment and you adjust for inflation, the price of those drugs increased 10% annually on average of $8,500 per year from 1995 to 2013. Now, clearly, most consumers can't afford to pay $84,000 for drug treatments if they have cancer. They just don't have the financial resources to pay for them. And that's where health insurance kicks in. Most insurance policies have annual out-of-pocket maximums. My policy, I I believe it's $6,500, and then the insurance company will pay everything. So if I get sick and I need an $85,000 drug, then the insurance company ends up paying for it. And as a result of these out-of-pocket maximums, most policyholders end up paying less than 5% of the expensive cancer treatments. And insurance company, with insurance companies picking up the bulk of the tab for high-priced drugs, we as consumers are essentially in, indifferent as to whether a treatment costs $20,000 or $100,000, especially if we're sick. We just want something 
that works. Insurance companies end up stuck in the middle. On one side, there are sick patients and their clinicians demanding access and payment for the latest medicine. On the other side, you have pharmaceutical companies setting the maximum price they can get away with without stoking a public or political backlash. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tecovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million, 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash david. That's netsuite.com slash david, netsuite.com slash david. Of course, sometimes pharmaceutical companies go too far, such as the recent example of Myelin, the maker of the EpiPen, an injector that releases epinephrine to reverse severe allergic reactions. Myelin's had raised prices 500% for its EpiPen in the past decade. And then, and then they reversed course because of social media outrage from parents and the subsequent widespread negative media coverage over its pricing practices. Now, one way pharmaceutical companies try to exploit the situation is they set the price of new drugs just slightly above, like 10 to 20% higher than existing treatments. Howard Bach, Burnt, and Conti called this the zone of indifference. And what they described the zone of indifference gives manufacturers the ability to set the prices of new drugs slightly above the prices of existing drugs without reducing quantity demanded. Now, that's not how economics is supposed to work. Typically, if you, you raise the price the volume you sell goes down. But in their case, there's a zone of indifference. So they're able to raise the price 10 to 20%, but it doesn't reduce the quantity. As costlier drugs come to market, oncologists become habituated to higher prices. They just get used to it. And that gives manufacturers leeway to set even higher prices in the future. The characteristics of the market for anti-cancer drugs, including patent protection, which protects producers from direct competition, and generous third-party payment by insurance companies allows this dynamic to persist. Now, this next thing, I was absolutely shocked. The medical professionals themselves profit from high drug prices. In that same paper, there's a quote. It says, oncologists and hospitals buy intravenous physician-administered drugs from wholesalers, and then they bill insurers. They profit on the spread between the reimbursed price and the wholesale cost. In other words, oncologists are marking up the price of the drugs. 
And the, and the quote goes on to say, medical oncology practices derive more than 50% of their revenue from drugs. And many oncologists report they face financial incentives to administer anti-cancer drugs. The quote goes on to say, oncologist drug choices are responsive to profit margins. The use of erotecan and its brand name as Camptosar decreased following the expiration of its patent, even though the price dropped by more than 80%, possibly reflecting declines in the spread between the reimbursement level and oncologist acquisition costs. So you had a drug that was being used to treat cancer. It came off patent and its price dropped 80% and in its volume collapsed. Now, perhaps it was the use of, of the generic substitute. Perhaps it was the oncologist. And, and on, oncologists are great people. I know there's, there's a listener to this show. I'm sure there's a lot of listeners to the show, but one specifically I quoted a few episodes ago. And I, I don't know how his practice is, is set up, but there are some that there's a financial incentive to, to have high drug prices because they're profiting from the spread. Significant jumps in prescription drug costs leads to higher insurance premiums. Blue Cross of Idaho admits that. I'm seeing that. 49% increases. Those high premiums push consumers out of the insurance market as they can't afford the premium. I don't know many people that can afford to pay $23,000 for a high deductible insurance policy. It seems ridiculous, but that's that's how the if you saw the financial statement of Blue Cross of Idaho, it's being driven by high prescription drug cost. So what are the solutions? And and I admit I'm not an expert. I just I looked, I, I searched the the articles, and, and they they had several. One is greater avail, availability and use of generic drugs. According to the Generic Pharmaceutical Association, use of generic drugs contributed. $254 billion in healthcare savings in the U.S. in 2014 and $1.7 trillion over the past 10 years. Yet there's currently a backlog of over 3,500 generic drugs awaiting approval by the FDA and the time to approval has lengthened from 30 months in 2012 to 48 months today. If we get more generic drugs out there, that, that does dampen prices and we see it causes brand name drugs to lose market share and that has helped reduce prices. At the same time, regulators should take action against pharmaceutical companies pursuing excessive pricing strategies and other anti-competitive practices for both generic and brand name drugs. The, 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 the drug companies are taking advantage of an opaque system. The fact that you have third-party payers and, and there's a demand from the public for the latest drug and they are charging maximum prices. A recent example is Valiant Pharmaceuticals. It was sued by mutual fund giant T. Rowe Price for fraud due to its alleged use of, quote, a secret pharmacy network, deceptive pricing and reimbursements, and fictitious accounting to shield the company's brand name drugs from generic competitors and artificially inflate revenue and profit. That's from an article from the U.S. Today. Now, if the market solutions and, and antitrust and anti-competitive practices are not cracked down that way, governments could enact further price caps or reference pricing schemes. 40% of the drugs in the U.S. are sold under some type of price cap with Medicaid 
or Medicare is some type of negotiated price. Reference pricing is when there is a maximum reimbursement amount by insurance companies for a particular class of drugs. Pharmaceutical companies are then allowed to charge more than that, but consumers have to pay the amount of the reference price. Price caps and reference prices are common in the European Union. Now, the downside of that is if if you have these price caps and reference prices, potentially that discourages additional innovation in the pharmaceutical sector. I mean, that's that's obviously what the pharmaceutical sector, if you're going to lower our profits, then we're not going to be able to develop as many drugs or as good of drugs as we could. Right now, only some, there's some price caps. And so Europe is negotiating rates, but they tend to negotiate the rates at discount off the current wholesale prices. And so there's an incentive for pharmaceutical companies to raise prices to everybody else that's not on some type of price cap because that's sort of the the baseline at which the discounts are set. And then pharmaceutical companies, if they're if they're price capped somewhere else, they're raising their prices, particularly on, on people like me and you that have private insurance and don't have the ability to negotiate the price of the drug. What seems clear is something needs to change. Households and businesses cannot continue to stomach double-digit price increases for health insurance premiums that are being driven by rising pharmaceutical prices. Now, this has gone on for three years you know, as the ACA or Obamacare has been in place. And it's not all Obamacare's fault. In some ways, as more people have, have had more insurance that has given pharmaceutical companies more leeway to raise prices because there's just not the transparency there. And, and the, the prescription drug benefit is, is, is compiled with the regular medical benefits. So it's all one policy. So it's not a separate prescription drug policy. So it further hides and makes it even more opaque. But something has to change. I don't know, I don't know what we're going to do with a $23,000 insurance, health insurance premium bill. I, I think one thing we're going to do is my sons, who are now over 20, are going to apply on their own and potentially they'll get some subsidies to, for their own policy because the prices are ridiculous. But I can't blame Blue Cross of Idaho because I saw the financials. So it, it is just, it's just a conundrum. It really is. So stay tuned. We'll see what happens. Show notes are available at moneyfortherestofus.net. If you'd like additional help with your investing, you can get that at the Money for the Rest of Us Hub. I recently got an email from a new member. And he says his normal investment pattern of the past 30 years was to buy and hold stocks. He was deeply influenced by his early reading uh, of Ben Graham. But now he doesn't have the time or the impetus to buy individual stocks. So he sold them all off about three weeks ago, and he's ready to start investing. He has a huge chunk of his net worth to invest, but he's concerned. He's worried about going back in to the market. He's worried about the Fed starting to raise rates and the potential impact on bond prices. He's worried about everything else going on in the world and the potential impact on stock prices. And he's trying to figure out what to do. And he's joined the hub to sort of help that. One thing that I'll do is I'll address his questions in this week's Money for the Rest of Us Plus episode. That's what I do. I answer questions from hub members where we can go into specifics in terms of, of their concerns. I also provide some, some assumptions for what you can earn investing in terms of different asset classes. And I, there's sample allocations there as well as 
model portfolios with specific ETFs they can use. All these tools are there to help you set your plan and to calm your concerns and to, to, to find out what's going on now in terms of I do a monthly investment conditions report to sort of help people get invested, stick to their plan, calm their concerns, and get their questions answered. And you can get all that at Money for the Rest of Us Hub at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.